Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by John Ibbotson, the longtime Globe and Mail columnist and best-selling author about his must-read new book, The Duel, Baker, Pearson, and the Making of Modern Canada. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including the story of continuity and tension between Canada's 13th and 14th prime ministers and how it came to shape modern Canada. I should say that I'm generally thrilled to have John on the podcast. He's a thinker and writer who I've long admired and someone who's been a kind and supportive of me as a public commentator. John, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you, Sean. It's good to be here. I thought we'd organize our conversation a bit chronologically. I'm going to put some questions to you about Diefenbaker and then Pearson, and then we'll bring them together as the book so effectively does. You argue that, quote, John Diefenbaker has been unfairly treated by history, unquote. Let me ask a two-part question. First, what has history gotten wrong about him? And second, what do you attribute the unfairness to? Those are two very large questions. I don't know about your high school, but mine contained a renegade in power, Peter C. Newman's History of the Diefenbaker Governments, written shortly after uh, Diefenbaker's defeat. And it's a beautifully written book, but it's also a savage indictment. And I think it became the conventional wisdom, that conventional wisdom being that Diefenbaker was a man whose inner demons, his paranoia, his indecisiveness, essentially contaminated his governments, made it impossible for anything to get done. They eventually disintegrated into chaos. His own cabinet rebelled against him. The Americans were up in arms against him. And he, uh, having won the greatest majority government in, in history up until then, subsequently was led to defeat and to a very diminished appreciation of his role in Canadian history. The, the narrative then being picked up by Lester Pearson, Mike Pearson, everybody called him, who then did all sorts of wonderful things. And over the years, as I was, you know, as you and I do, researching different topics and issues, I kept coming across stuff that contradicted that. Um, reforms to immigration that happened on Diefenbaker's watch, reforms to healthcare that happened on Diefenbaker's watch, uh, human rights legislation, Diefenbaker's watch, justice legislation, Diefenbaker's watch. And it became apparent to me that. Whatever, you know, demons Diefenbaker did struggle with as an individual, his government got a lot done. And that a proper telling of the story of Canadian history between the wars would be one that talked about reforms that were implemented or that were initiated by Diefenbaker, implemented by Pearson. Indeed, in some cases, initiated by Saint Laurent, moved forward by Diefenbaker and, and then advanced by Pearson. That there was indeed a continuity progress through those years, and that was underappreciated. 
As to why he was underappreciated, I think I've said before that there is a a bit of a, if you'll forgive me using the word, a Laurentian bias in our history writing, a, a kind of a progressive assumption that makes it difficult for conservative politicians to get a fair hearing. And from the days that I covered Mike Harris in the 1990s through, through Stephen Harper, so now it just seems to me that the conservatives who have led our, our country and our provinces need to be given a, a fair understanding of, of their contribution. I want to ask about Diefenbaker's character formation and the development of his worldview. Uh, you write that one of the gifts from his father was, quote, a Whiggish view of history, unquote. What do you mean, John, and, and how did it influence his worldview in politics? Yeah, Diefenbaker, like his father and like most people of his generation, he was born in the last years of the 19th century, believed that a great and beneficent British empire had spread civilization around the world, that this was a world of continuing progress and enlightenment. And so long as the sun shone on that empire, all would be well with the world. The cataclysms of the First and Second World War and the move towards independence and the general dismantlement of the British Empire in the 1950s did not, at a fundamental level, change that worldview. He continued both to believe in the progress of humanity, which, by the way, I think overall is a good thing, but he also remained more tied to the British Empire and to its traditions than, than probably he should have. Um, the country was moving on after the Second World War, and the United States was replacing Great Britain as a preeminent power. And it's not something that Diefenbaker ever really was able to reconcile himself to. You argue that Diefenbaker was the country's first populist prime minister. Uh, I have an image of the mid-century conservative party as quite stodgy and even elitist, in, at least in some quarters. It's, of course, true that he didn't have a lot of caucus support when he first became party leader. John, talk about Diefenbaker's populism and how it interacted with the center of gravity within his cabinet and broader caucus. Yes, uh, I, indeed, he's the only populist prime minister that we've had in this country's history. It was a populism rooted in experience. Diefenbaker was the son of a teacher and a rather impoverished one at that. And then when he was eight, the family moved to Saskatchewan and homesteaded. He was poor on that homestead. He was resentful of the toffs uh, and the swells who paraded around looking down their noses at people with funny German last names like his. That resentment at its best led to a crusading zeal, which manifested itself, for example, in his many years as a lawyer, defending people who otherwise would have had no proper legal defense. His populism was rooted in that experience. It, it is the populism of a man who grew up poor. Uh, it was a, of a man who sat in cells while mothers sobbed and explained why, they, why their child had died and, and why she had buried it, or why she felt she had to kill her husband if she was going to save herself. That it was a populism rooted in his own experience with the little guy because he was himself a little guy who had risen to the top. I think, as and I argue in the book, that this was something that the quote-unquote common people always recognized in Diefenbaker and, mm -hmm. and, and, and admired in him. And they never lost that admiration uh, through the thick and thin of his political career. The book describes Diefenbaker as something of a realignment figure in terms of the intellectual and geographical center of gravity in Canadian conservative politics. Uh, you make the case, for instance, that he oriented the party in a more Western direction. Talk about his 
influence on conservative politics, including its Western shift and its long run consequences? Yeah, but David Baker inherited a conservative party that was based on two assumptions. It served the interests of Bay Street and it lost elections. It lost them <laughs> over and over and over again. Um, and it had been losing elections pretty much nonstop throughout his life, with the you know, exception of, of, of Bennett in 1930, which, which only lasted one term. Diefenbaker believed that the party had to broaden its base, that it had to speak to ordinary individuals, not just to the Tofts on Bay Street and James Street. And he believed that, that there was a connection between the farmers and pioneers of the West, uh, amongst whom he had grown up, and the, and the party as well. And indeed, he was the person who realigned that party. Um, you know, when John Diefenbaker was growing up in, in Saskatchewan, he liked to joke that the only thing saving conservatives were the game laws. And by the time he left, the Conservative Party was now anchored in the, in the Prairie Provinces and has indeed uh, arguably been anchored in the Prairie Provinces ever since that time. So he was responsible in part for that, for that realignment. You mentioned in an earlier answer, John, that as you look deeper into the Diefenbaker government's policy record, there was more accomplishments than is the conventional wisdom. But you also observe that his government starts to lose focus and coherence and begins to devolve into the type of infighting and paranoia and so on that tends to be associated with Stephen Baker's time as prime minister. Talk a bit about what happened. How did the wheels start to fall off for the prime minister, Stephen Baker? It's important to remember that Stephen Baker came to the leadership and to the prime ministership late in life. He had fought and lost numerous elections uh, before he finally was elected to the House of Commons in 1940. Once he got into the party and into the caucus, it became quickly clear that he was an outlier inside that caucus. There were MPs who admired him and respected him, but the leadership of the party wanted nothing to do with him. Um, He was from the West. They were from, from the center. And he was a populist and they were elitists. It was only through a strange confluence of events, the pipeline debate, which rattled the confidence in the liberal government, uh, the sudden taking ill of George Drew, the conservative leader, the need for um, to pick a, another leader quickly. And there was no one really available at the time who was willing to take it on or able to take it on. And the the depth of popularity that Stephen Baker had within actually the grassroots of the party, if not the elite, that made it possible for him to become leader in 1956, and then to shock everyone except himself by becoming prime minister in 1957. So he didn't have time to learn how you lead a party. He was not by nature a trusting man, and he didn't learn to to build trust. He couldn't, uh, he had trouble taking honest criticism. That said, from 57 until about 61, uh, he gave us good government. And, and as I said in the book, if, you know, if the the Diefenbaker government ended in 61, he would have had a, a pretty glowing review. It was only in 1962 when he got himself embroiled in the attempt to fire the governor of the Bank of Canada, James Coyne, got himself into a huge fight with the Kennedy administration over nuclear weapons, that his lack of experience and his inability to trust and, frankly, his growing paranoia caused him to make a, a series of bad decisions that ended up defeating him and leading to the, the, the defeat of his government. That, again, is what we tend to remember in history. But if you looked back from 57, 58, 59, 60, 61, up until then, things are going pretty well. Talk, John, about Diefenbaker's conception of the national policy 
and the notion of the frontier as a key part of his worldview and, and understanding of Canada. Yeah, because he was centered in the West and because he tended to be visionary, at least in his rhetoric, he had a recognition for the North, the far North, um, that had eluded previous politicians. Remember, he grew up around Indigenous Canadians, Métis Canadians. He grew up in communities where people went North to hunt, to fish. So he had ties to the North that other politicians up until then uh, had not had, at, at least at the national level. And it made it possible for him to envision what he called the new frontier, the development of, of, of the North for its uh, resources. Now, it has to be said, this was a North in which there was scant recognition for the presence of the Inuit people who'd already been there for a very long time. This was very much a road to resources vision of the North, opening up the North and developing its, its great wealth. In the late 1950s, early 1960s, it would not have occurred to Diefenbaker, even though he was the prime minister who granted the franchise to First Nations, to have thought more about the rights uh, and needs of people um, in, in the territories. But it was a vision for the North that, that, that he put forward and that, in fact, captured the imagination of the nation and started, well, for one thing, he started a highway that Stephen Harper finished some 50 years later. Let's turn now to Pearson. I was reminded in reading the book that he spent some time as a history professor with a focus on British and constitutional history. How did his academic and intellectual work ultimately influence his politics? Not to contradict the question, but I wouldn't say that his academic and uh, intellectual works influenced his politics all that much. Look, he was a smart guy and he was a tremendous jock. He excelled at all sorts of sports and he was making a greater contribution to the University of Toronto sports teams. Uh, than he was to the University of Toronto's history department. But what impressed people about Mike Pierce, what impressed them when he went to Oxford, what impressed them at University of Toronto, was his ability to work with others. He was the kind of people that people liked. He was, the, he was the kind of person that people liked. He was the kind of person that people trusted. He was the kind of person who could who could bridge divides and create a consensus. People were recognizing that in him when he was a very young man. And as O.D. Skeleton began putting together the first true Department of External Affairs, the first true you know, foreign office for Canada, he noticed the young academic at U of T, was impressed with his intelligence and impressed as well with his collegiality, and, and indeed asked him to, uh, to sit for the foreign service exams, uh, which, by the way, Pearson came in first place. So it, I don't think it was so much how Pearson viewed the constitution of Canada or the role of the British Empire in Canadian history, as it was his own intelligence and affability, which drew him uh, to the attention of powerful people and would continue to draw him to the attention of powerful people for the rest of his career. Perhaps it was the bow tie, but I had an image of Pearson as an earnest, teetotaling intellectual who wasn't a natural fit for politics. You observed, though, that by the time he got to Ottawa, he, he did drink and he liked to gossip and some of the other aspects of political life, even though he hated campaigning. If Pearson wasn't Brian Mulroney or even John Cretchen, he also wasn't quite Stéphane Dion either. How should we view Pearson as a political figure? We should view him as a highly successful Mandarin. Remember, this was a fellow who was essentially the deputy minister of Foreign Affairs, who then became the Minister of Foreign Affairs, who then became the leader of the Liberal Party, who then became Prime Minister. So it's a strange journey that he took. And he always maintained that he got into politics more or less by accident. 
At that point in our country's history, the marriage of the federal public service and the Liberal Party of Canada was so complete that it was hard to know where one stopped and the other began. And again, that was married in his career. He was also, once he became prime minister, a very good and effective person at orienting policy in the right direction, convincing premiers to adopt the Canada Pension Plan, uh, working uh, to get the point system in place for immigration. He was passionately committed to a flag for Canada and saw that through despite intense opposition. And all of those things rightly contribute to his, his reputation as a fine prime minister. And he was also a good and decent man. But he was not, as you mentioned, a very good politician. He, the, there was a bit of a lisp there. Uh, the bow ties were uh, offended a lot of people even back then. They made him seem stuffy and, as you say, intellectual. He couldn't campaign well. He managed to lose the election of 1962, which everybody thought he was going to win. He managed to be reduced to a minority government in 1963 when people thought the majority government was likely. And he managed to repeat that minority government in 65 when everyone thought that the majority government was an absolute certainty. It was uh, Pearson's ability to almost lose elections uh, that defined his prime ministership as much as it was also his ability to advance policy. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. The book outlines some fascinating insights into Pearson's own worldview and political ideas. You write that he sought to move the Liberal Party to the left. And in the aftermath of the 1960 Kingston Conference, he, of course, oversaw the creation of key parts of the modern welfare state. Yet you also note that he thought Pierre Trudeau's subsequent foreign policy was too squishy. What are we to make of Pearson's politics? How should we situate him in the long run ideological trends within the Liberal Party? I would say, first of all, it's not just within the Liberal Party. There was tremendous consensus in the wake of the Second World War through the 1940s and 1950s and first half of the 1960s. There wasn't a lot of divide between Republicans and Democrats in the United States. Um, there wasn't a great divide between Labour and Conservatives in Great Britain. And there wasn't a great divide between progressive conservatives and liberals in Canada. So the tradition that both Pearson and Diefenbaker embraced was one of, first of all, a winning side, the, the allies who had won the Second World War, who had then won the peace by creating, in essence, the middle class, the suburban middle class through the GI Bill, through loans and supports for housing and education for, for veterans, who had uh, over, overseen huge works, the St. Lawrence Seaway, for example, um, the system of national highways, the system of airports that were all built in these years, and also the creation of the welfare state, the pension plans, immigration reform, welfare, um, education reform, all of these programs, federal and provincial, were launched in the 1950s and 60s, and in many ways inherited by Pierre Trudeau uh, when he became prime minister in 1968. And that's one of the core arguments of the book, that there is policy continuity 
between Diefenbaker and Pearson, although traditionally Pearson gets all the credit. I previously asked you, John, to situate Diefenbaker within his cabinet and broader caucus. Let me do the same with Pearson. And before I do, I'll set it up this way. In reading the book, I was reminded of the extraordinary depth of the the Pearson era cabinets, and including, of course, the inclusion into federal politics of, of Pierre Trudeau in 1965. So talk a bit about Pearson as the head of cabinet and cabinet governance during his time as prime minister. I would say that Pearson and Diefenbaker were both very similar in that they presided over an era of cabinet government. This was an era that had been launched by Louis Saint-Laurent, in which the prime minister was seen as essentially uh, chairman of the board, the board being cabinet. So powerful and able cabinet ministers could achieve significant reforms and significant advances, and did on both their watch. And both Pearson and Diefenbaker would have said, you know, I'm here to guide the cabinet and to provide direction. But in the end, this is cabinet government. The difference is that Diefenbaker's, as I said, paranoia made it difficult for him to trust his cabinet. And indeed, he became suspicious of cabinet ministers that were too successful. Ellen Fairclough, for example, achieved uh, major reforms in immigration when she was as the first cabinet minister who was a woman and as immigration minister under Diefenbaker. He demoted her for that. Pearson had none of that personal animus. He would have, he was very happy whenever one of his ministers or achieved success. Also, though, he had the ability to surround himself with very high competent advisors. Tom Kent was as important a person in the Pearson government as any minister in the Pearson government. It's also true, though, that Diefenbaker and Pearson both had trouble managing their cabinets. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were tensions between the Quebec ministers and the English Canadian ministers in Pearson's cabinet, and at times that cabinet almost collapsed. The the difference between Diefenbaker and Pearson is only that in the last extreme moments, Pearson was able to use the skills as a diplomat, the skills that had won him the, the Nobel Prize, to hold cabinet together for a few more months until he retired, and Diefenbaker was not able to hold his cabinet together. But they both faced strong and powerful cabinets, and they both faced cabinet rebellions. I was reminded in reading the book, John, that the narrative that the Pearson government's principal accomplishments were around the further development of the modern welfare state could have been possibly substituted with a story of an economic nationalist agenda had Walter Gordon's vision ultimately found durability within the government itself and the the broader public. Talk a bit about economic nationalism and the role that it played in the Pearson era. It's interesting that in a, in a way, Walter Gordon and John Diefenbaker had more in common with each other than Walter Gordon had with his own prime minister. Uh, Gordon was the finance minister who put forward a budget. It was the worst day in the, in the Pearson government's history, uh, not long after they came to power, that would have essentially um, reshored uh, a good chunk of Canadian industry that was being turned into branch plants of, of the American Colossus. The Americans were so upset and the Canadian business class was so upset that the budget was essentially scuppered and it also scuppered the friendship between Walter Gordon and Mike Pearson. But David Baker was also looking for ways in which to to diversify trade. His answer, which, by the way, was quite a flawed one, uh, was to increase trade with the British Empire and the British Commonwealth. 
And the reason that it, the reason it was a good idea was, in fact, it was the it was the seed of of our modern trade policy, in which we have tr- tried to diversify trade agreements in the Pacific and and in Europe uh, with some success uh, under both conservative and liberal governments. Ethan Baker was trying to form a trade area within the Commonwealth, and the reason that was a bad idea was simply that Great Britain wanted nothing to do with it. Britain was trying <laughs> to get itself into the Euro- what is now the European Union, and Ethan Baker was correct by the way, in uh, telling the British that they would fail in their effort to get into the European Union, and they did at that point. But it meant that the Diefenbaker was selling an idea of, of a trading bloc within the Commonwealth that Britain itself had no desire to be a part of, so it failed. But in the end, what Diefenbaker was doing, in a way, was what uh, Walter Gordon was doing. They are both trying to find a way to avoid having the Canadian economy swallowed up by the United States. You you write that the single biggest difference between Diefenbaker and Pearson was their, quote, ability to grow, unquote. And the former couldn't evolve in his views, but the latter could. How did Pearson's own politics and his conception of politics evolve over this period? In two ways. First of all, because he had been ambassador to the United States, Pearson recognized that the world after 1945 was an American world, that Washington was the new Rome and that Canada was going to have to accommodate itself within that reality. And indeed, Pearson was one of the, not the only, but one of the architects of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This, this, this was the time in which Canada was joining organizations and indeed helping to create organizations. It was seen as an important middle power within the Western alliance. That is sometimes difficult for us to remember now, but that's how we were seen then. And so Pearson was able to reorient Canada away from that British imperial perspective into one that recognized that this was a, a new West that was oriented towards towards Washington. And the second thing that he was re- able to recognize was that within that reorientation, Canada needed to have a clear understanding of itself, of what it was. That meant under that meant understanding what was happening in Quebec because the Quiet Revolution was underway. It meant reforming the Liberal Party itself, which was pretty corrupt in the province of Quebec. Um, and in fact, the bringing Trudeau and Pelletier and Marchand into cabinet was a way of reforming the, the Quebec wing of the party, but also meant dealing with, with rising Quebec nationalism. And for Pearson, it meant, above all, the symbol of a flag, which he championed month after month after month in the face of uh, deep hostility, um, led by Diefenbaker, who did not understand any of these things. And, and and was deeply resentful of the flag. And on that debate, we see where Pearson understood where Canada was going in a way that Diefenbaker did not. The, the University of Toronto constitutional and, and uh, British history professor had indeed uh, evolved into someone far more modern with a far more subtle understanding of what Canada was becoming. Let's turn now to the book's insights about the interrelationship between the two prime ministers. Uh, you write that even though they came from different backgrounds and had different experiences, they both came to personify the growth of the country in the 20th century. How can we understand the modern history of Canada itself through Diefenbaker and Pearson? And indeed, the book tries to, in fact, create that arc, that arc of history through the lives of the two men. They were both born in small town Ontario. Diefenbaker was the son of a teacher. Um, Pearson was the son of a minister. They were both itinerant. Uh, teachers and ministers moved around a lot. They were living in a province of a dominion that was not yet a country. Britain had complete control over Canadian foreign policy. Canada was at that point trying to define literally its boundaries. 
and its role, the role of the federal government, the role of the provincial government. It was creating provinces. It was not sovereign. Um, when the First World War was declared, Canada was automatically at war because it was part of the British Empire. But both of those men served but did not fight in the First World War. And Canada was a different country coming out of the war than, than it was coming in. And then again, Diefenbaker and Pearson rose in their respective uh, professions. Uh, Diefenbaker as a lawyer in the prairies, Pearson as a diplomat within external affairs, as Canada began to assert itself as a North American northern power and a sovereign state and a member of alliances with its own particular destiny. And as you say, and as the book says, we, as we watch Diefenbaker and Pearson's career progress, we are watching them progress within a Canada that is itself changing its own definition of itself. And in the end, the two of them who were born under the reign of Queen Victoria in small town, semi-colonial Ontario, fought over whether Canada should accept nuclear weapons onto its soil. That's how much the world had changed. That's how much Canada had changed and how much they had changed. I want to ask you about your key insight concerning the continuity between Diefenbaker and Pearson. You write that, quote, Pearson gave coherence to Diefenbaker's piecemeal reforms, unquote. Why don't you unpack that idea here, John? I mentioned that Ellen Fairclaw transformed the immigration department. Up until then, the purpose of the immigration department in, in, in the federal government was to keep Canada white, to prevent Fairclaw went in and fought for years to clean out that department, and then finally rose in the House of Commons, I believe it was January 1962, and announced the new order in council, which said that your race, your religion, the color of your skin, none of these will any longer be a factor in whether you are admitted to this country. This was the beginning of multiculturalism. This was the beginning of Canada's truly race-blind immigration. It was a great achievement by Faircloud. But still, this was an order in council. And, and you still had people inside the department who could make sure that applications from London were processed much faster than applications from Delhi. So Pearson took those reforms and actually with the help of Tom, it was Tom Kent's idea, created the point system where you there's just a form and you have to fill it out. And if you've got English, you get so many points. If you've got education, you've got so many points. If you have the job skills that we need, you get so many points. And if you ma- match the threshold you're in. In some ways, it's one of the greatest inventions in Canadian history. So immigration uh, is something that started out under uh, Diefenbaker. Immigration reform is something that started out under Diefenbaker and was pushed forward by Pearson. Diefenbaker took an idea that the Senate government had created but not ever a- acted on, which was universal public hospital care. It was one of his first acts as prime minister was to, was to announce and implement universal public hospital care. Tommy Douglas in Saskatchewan took the money and implemented instead universal uh, public health care, period. Diefenbaker didn't have a mandate for anything that ambitious, but he created a a Royal Commission. And the Royal Commission was chaired by his good friend Emmett Hall, who was also from Saskatchewan. The two guys that don't each other since they were in law school. And they all, Emmett Hall, Tommy Douglas, John Diefenbaker, were all of the same ilk, of the same worldview. And everyone knew what Hall was going to recommend. And he did recommend it. And then Mr. Pearson, who is now prime minister, gave us Medicare. Let me put a penultimate question to you. There's a lot of talk these days about political polarization and the contentiousness of contemporary politics. John, give listeners a flavor of this era. What was Diefenbaker and Pearson's personal relationship like? Did they like or respect each other? 
And what about the divide between the major parties that we talked about a bit earlier? They couldn't stand each other. They liked each other fine when Pearson was Minister of External Affairs and Diefenbaker was External Affairs critic. But inevitably, Diefenbaker became conservative leader and, liberal, and Pearson became liberal leader. And then something happened that had never happened before. They fought each other for a decade. They fought each other from 1958 to 1968 through a number of elections, a couple of which Diefenbaker won and a couple of which Pearson won. But Diefenbaker didn't leave. So even in 1968, they were, they were still, or at least at the end of 67, they were still at war with each other. And the country was getting mighty sick of it. And part of that Trudeau mania that we had in 1968 was a whole country going, oh, thank God these old men are gone and we can turn to something new. But there was a lot of scandals. There was a lot of acrimony. Pearson really hated Diefenbaker. I don't think Diefenbaker hated Pearson any more than he hated everybody uh, by that point <laughs> in his life, you know, except his wife. But, uh, but, but Pearson came to loathe Diefenbaker because Diefenbaker humiliated him in the House of Commons over and over and over again. Again, Diefenbaker was a great parliamentarian and Pearson wasn't. So when we get into the scandals of the book, the Munsinger scandal, the Rivara scandal, things like that, Diefenbaker just made Pearson's life hell. But they were fighting over things like scandals. Again, apart from the flag, the two parties weren't at war with each other over monetary policy or fiscal policy, over education or health care. Broadly speaking, progressive conservatives were in the same boat as liberals. If Robert Stanfield had won the election in 1968 instead of Pierre Trudeau, we probably would have had government not that dissimilar uh, to the government that we had under Trudeau. Um, duller, perhaps, but but in the same in the same general vein, I I knew already, but I truly was impressed with how effectively it is possible to uh, to govern when there is a broad social consensus. We live in a time now where that social consensus is under stress. But whatever else happened, Diefenbaker and Pearson were able to achieve much because everybody, including their cabinets, including university departments, including the editorial boards of the newspapers, was pretty much of the same mind about what should be done. Last question. As I mentioned to you before we started recording, this book is extraordinarily well-researched. What did you learn about Diefenbaker or Pearson or the era that surprised you the most? I'm not going to give it away, but I was very surprised by the, the extent to which they each had the same experience in the First World War. I'll just leave it at that. I didn't know anything about John Diefenbaker's first wife. Didn't know he had a first wife until uh, I started working uh, on the book. I was I, there was one thing that absolutely surprised me, where I went, "Oh my God!" It was that the Saint Laurent cabinet voted just before the 1957 election to terminate the Avro Aero program because they recognized that the, that the plane was was already obsolete. But they decided not to announce that decision until after the election because they didn't want to. They knew it would be unpopular. Of course, they lost the election. So John Diefenbaker inherited the the decision to cancel the Avro Arrow, uh, which he did. He's being blamed for that to this day. But it was the right decision. It was the right decision uh, when Senator was prime minister, and it was the right decision when he was prime minister. Well, those are just some of the fascinating insights that one will find in the duel: Diefenbaker, Pearson, and the making of modern Canada. John Ibbotson, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Sean, this has been great fun. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.